Ovid's Flea by P.J. Edgel. Episode 4. Henry. He was on I-40 East, but it was much later than he wanted. 3.30 p.m. This meant with minimal rest, he would make it to New York around 5 p.m. Sunday. Old Pickett's car wouldn't start this morning. It turned out to be the battery. There had been some faulty ones, and the manufacturer had recalled them, but somehow he'd put this one in Pickett's car. He had to ride it back to the shop, switch the batteries, and then install it at home. Before he knew it, it was mid-afternoon. The route came back to him pretty quickly, and with it memories of trips with Viola and Julian. The joy promised by their courtship and marriage vows had seemed possible back then. All the promises could be kept, and his intentions to never lay a finger on his wife except in love, an easy concept. Despite her denial, he felt her falling out of love with him, felt her warm, unconditional love slither off of him. At first it made him desperate, then after a while, angry. But still, the first time he'd hit her, he was apologetic, surprised at how easy the reaction had come. But he'd hit her, and, and she didn't love him, and he was angry and ashamed that he thought she could love him. The emotions built up into an inferno, and the flames enveloped him, lashing out at the slightest reminder of his folly. Before long, they had disintegrated into a version of his parents' marriage. His disgust fueled the fire. Viola. Viola was exhausted from driving, but she was determined to make it to her mother's by 7 p.m., she figured her mother would be just in the middle of cooking dinner. She wondered who would be over. A Saturday night at Jean's had always been a tradition amongst their friends. She knew Kimberly would be there. Kimberly had instantly become a second daughter to Jean and vice versa. Dinner was always around 7.30 or 8 so that everyone would have a chance to go out later, including Miss Jean. Age never seemed to slow her down, and a Saturday night was a Saturday night. But you went out with a good dinner in you. Julian, feeling better now, offered to drive and took over the wheel. Viola slept for a while, but woke quickly. The excitement of seeing those she loved most in the world made her restless. It's going to be amazing, she said almost to herself, but also to Julian. Is it? At the moment, Ma, I'm still kind of in shock, I guess. But we'll be okay, right? More than okay. It's going to be amazing. Maybe hard in parts. Change always is, but amazing. We'll be more of a family than we've ever been. There's my mom, which everyone calls Miss Jean, and Kimberly, you know them. Oh, and then there's Thomas. My Tommy, I used to call him. When I lived in New York, it was always Kimberly, Tommy, and me. The three of us did everything together. He'll be like an uncle to you. He'll be a big help to you adjusting to being out. 
We're going to arrive just as Mom is cooking her big Saturday night dinner. Everyone will be there. It will be great. It will be the most delicious moment when we walk in. I can't wait. Jesse. Jesse was frustrated. This wasn't the plan. Mark had left the suite earlier in the afternoon with a terse, See you later. He'd heard two sets of doors shut, and that was it. That was about four and a half hours ago. Jesse had pulled a chair to the window of the living room and sat watching the city. He'd ordered some of the best vodka he could find on the menu and sat drinking it. Just drinking and thinking. He watched the light change. He watched Manhattan's pulse change. He realized he was waiting for Mark. The bottle was half gone when the boy woke up. With each sip of vodka, the boy became stronger and flexed his muscles. It had been a long sleep, a 12-year nap with the occasional interruption, but he was back, stronger than ever. He found new clothes that made his biceps bulge and made his ass look high and tight. He looked good. It was good to be back. He started talking. The boy alternated between sympathy and cruel taunting, which made Jesse drink more and faster, trying to drown out the voice of the boy not realizing he was making him stronger. Suddenly, the boy made a suggestion. He cajoled and seduced. Let's go out. Let's explore. Mark left us, but we don't need him and shouldn't be waiting for him. You remember how this game is played. <laughs> Never let them know how much you want them. Jesse fought it. He didn't want to go out. He just wanted to wait for Mark. Understand what went wrong. Maybe tell him his true feelings. He needed to know how Mark felt. Part of him wondered if Mark felt. He took another swig of vodka. The boy grew louder. I want to go out now. The boy wanted to test his new look, his new feelings of power. Jesse was out of the chair, in his clothes, and the night air was hitting his face before he knew what was happening. He started walking with a purpose uptown. He had no idea where he was going, but the boy knew, and now he could barely hear his own thoughts. All he could hear was his other self, the formerly dormant boy, fully alive and awake, pushing towards his old life. The boy was aggressive. He knew what he wanted and had been patient a long time. He wanted out. Places and people came back to him. He headed towards Chelsea and then continued up 9th Avenue to Hell's Kitchen, or what they now called Clinton, which he found ludicrous. He liked the heat of Hell's Kitchen. He got cruised, which made him stronger. He knew he looked good. He stopped to talk to one guy and stood dangerously close as he asked where the new Roxy was. He knew perfectly well where it was, but the boy wanted to test his power and the guy was hot. The hot guy told him the location of the new Roxy. Then, Jesse leaned in and kissed him savagely and walked away. The boy cackled in Jesse's head. He bellowed that it was good to be back with so much power and the knowledge how to use it. The bar was crowded. Saturday night of Pride Weekend with a new Roxy was the place to be for both out-of-towners, wide-eyed at the smorgasbord of hot party boys in New York, and for New Yorkers who wanted to prey on the out-of-towners. Jesse, merely a slave now to the boy in his head, moved through the dense crowd. The music pulsated loudly, and he felt as if his heart was at its core. 
Men grabbed at him and he obliged, the boy obliged, feeling his power and bestowing his gifts at will. But one man wouldn't let him go. He held him tightly, his hand on Jesse's ass, grinding his pelvis into his. Jesse didn't protest. The boy was in control and was enjoying the attention, but eventually he broke away, looking back to wink at the man. He allowed himself to be passed around, and then he stopped with another man who had turned him around as he danced with someone else and kissed him and then pulled back to grin. <laughs> Jesse grinned back. What's your name? The man shouted. Jesse, the boy shouted back. You here alone? <laughs> no, I'm in town with my boyfriend. Where is he? Dunno. The man grinned again and began to lead Jesse to a back room. But on the way, the first man grabbed him and said, Will you call me later? Jesse said, Yes, and pulled out his phone to take the guy's number, and then it happened. He was looking at a picture of Annie and the kids. The phone started to vibrate in his hand, and the picture was now taking up the entire screen. Annie was calling him. He was stone cold sober. The boy slapped back into unconsciousness. He stared at the phone. It stopped ringing, but it felt as if it was alive, pulsating in his hand. Jesse tried to run, but couldn't, and then he started punching anyone who got in his way until he got to the door. Finally outside, he threw up. The vodka poured all over the sidewalk, along with the guts of the boy. Mark. The afternoon had been spent at the Met. A drink and a cigar at a private club had filled the time after the museum, and now here he was at Oriel's. He saw the back of Kimberly first, literally, as she wore a top that had no back. Every person in the bar was staring at her, men and women. She had always been exquisite. She never looked trashy. Trash wasn't any part of her story, and he'd known her so long that he actually knew her story. Unusual for a, their type of relationship, but he'd been one of her first customers. Even when he'd first met her, she came across as seasoned. He knew she had never been poor. Though she wasn't a trust fund baby, she came from success and wealth. She was flawlessly educated. In fact, she had a master's in psychology from Columbia. She explained to him once that she enjoyed the power of her role as a provider of great sex and a manipulator of identity. She viewed it as an incredible joke on society that she, an educated woman with a master's in psychology, chose to charge men for sex, and she was good at it. Not only the sex, but also the business. His hand landed on the small of her back, and he felt a tingle of excitement for after dinner. She swiveled in her stool to look at him. He saw the difference immediately, but showed nothing in his face. He merely kissed her cheek. What the hell had she done? It wasn't that she looked ugly or was ruined. She just looked... The word came into his head immediately. Common. Pedestrian, even. A common pedestrian beauty. Ah, what does it matter, he thought. She screws exquisitely, and that couldn't have changed. But still, her exoticness had been compromised. In his mind, her value diminished. Kimberly. 
It was for a millisecond, but she knew Harrington had noticed her face. Her heart sank. And then she caught herself. What the hell am I doing, she thought. It might be Mark Harrington, but he's still a customer. And I'm still an amazing fuck. And I'm still getting paid. The key to tonight was finding the persona that she could play to be with Mark. That was the key to her success. She became whoever the guy wanted her to be. And the fact she'd never tired of the game, nor did she need drugs to make it happen, was the reason she was successful. Kimberly never got burnt out. As the business had become more successful, she'd only pro-fucked, as she called it, nine months out of the year. She summered in the Hamptons, traveled in Europe. She had created a nice life, and she only had girls of a similar class working for her. No trailer trash or bridge and tunnel girls. They had to be educated and be able to have a conversation. After all, she and Vi had never set out to run a finishing school. So the key to overcoming her personal humiliation of a facelift that made her look average, or at least your average beauty, was to be someone else. But who was the question? And then she decided, a younger version of herself. Kimberly from 12 years ago, before it all went crazy. Before Viola, her only real friend, left to marry an out-of-town John. And before the face surgeries had started. When the Masters was fresh. And she was proud and the business was the most delicious joke. That's who she would be tonight. Kimberly, at 29. With that decided, Kimberly looked up at Mark as he paid her tab at the bar. Like a light switch had been turned on, Kimberly of 29, supremely confident, sexy, and exotic, lightly touched his arm as she jumped off the bar stool. It worked, as she noticed Harrington's face relax a little, and his arm possessively went to the small of her back. Harrington, as she had always called him, was still exquisite-looking to her mind. A very good-looking man. And age was doing nothing except making him look better. They were escorted to their table, and all eyes followed them. I may look different, but I'm still the best-looking woman in this room and Harrington's best-looking guy. She looked at the other women in the room, and as she embraced her role, she pitied them as the husband studied her, some openly, some covertly. Kimberly of 29 slipped into her chair with the amused assurance that the husbands could never afford her. Jesse. He scurried away from the front of the Roxy, going to 10th Avenue, hoping it was as dangerous as it had been and someone might try to mug him or something so he could fight, beat someone or something instead of himself. The tent was now gentrified like the rest of New York. He realized he needed to call Annie back, that he hadn't called the kids to say goodnight. His self-loathing rose to a new height, making him dizzy and ill. He needed to call them, but needed to wait until his voice was more normal, until the self-hatred was at its normal level and Annie wouldn't suspect anything. He continued to wander, searching for something to unleash his shame onto. But nothing appeared. Viola. It was much later than Viola had hoped. She and Julian switched halfway through New Jersey. With her hands on the steering wheel, they didn't shake as much. The churning in her stomach increased with each mile. 
though she somewhat dreaded how her mother would yell, what she couldn't wait for was the smell of her mother. No matter how long she yelled or ranted, she wanted to hold and to be held, and most of all, to smell her. The smell of her kitchen and the scent of her home. She knew that that smell would heal her. The smell of home. She imagined that she would walk through the door and, in just one breath, like water, breaking a dam, she would be filled up, healed. The hole would be filled in. She hadn't had a home in ten years, and as hard as she tried, he'd resisted every change she'd made. Every attempt had been thwarted, right down to the new higher-thread-counted linens. It was the smallest things which attacked her and hurt the most. She wasn't allowed to let any part of herself show. Thus, she had run an automatic. She had called it Autofrau. The term reminded her that she knew things, other languages, how to use her brain, that she was clever. She'd even had sex with him that way, like she knew nothing about real pleasure. He never seemed to notice. To get to her mother's house in Brooklyn, they drove through lower Manhattan. She'd never spent much time down there, and parts of it looked like a different city than she remembered. She remembered a John that she used to make house calls for, always in his penthouse office that he practically lived in. Some investment banker. She knew he'd had a wife and child from the pictures on his desk. She assumed he made it home occasionally, if for no other reason but to visit his cars, to which he would compare her at times. It was all so ridiculous, but fun to remember comforting even. In the first years of her marriage, she used to remember things like that to remind her that she used to be unique, unusual, even envied. But now it just made her remember the feeling of lower Manhattan and before terrorists had changed the world. She crossed the Brooklyn Bridge and started navigating the streets. She could barely breathe, but she wasn't worried. She knew she'd be breathing easier soon in her mother's embrace. Finally, they pulled up in front of her mother's house. Brooklyn was different, more gentrified. She noticed as they drove through the streets, but her neighborhood hadn't changed. It had always been filled with successful artists, writers, and business people involved in professions like advertising in all different races and religions. The rest of Brooklyn had finally caught up. She bounded out of the car and up the steps, barely breathing. Her skin tingled in anticipation of a loving touch. People need to be touched, she often told Julian. He was always shy of affection. She slipped the key into the lock effortlessly, but the minute the door failed to creak as it opened, in its familiar way, she caught her breath. She stood in the doorway, but it was all wrong. The smell, it was off, like sour milk. The unfamiliar scent burned her nostrils. Her stomach turned and burned as the scent traveled down her system. Her head jerked back and she stopped short. Julian bumped into her. Ma, what's wrong? She couldn't answer him. 
Her eyes darted around the entrance hall. Unfamiliar items assaulted her. Colors had changed. Pictures were removed. Her mother wasn't here. She began to tremble. Get out, was all she could muster, but not sure if she meant it for herself, Julian, or to the unknown persons who had invaded her home. Mom, what's wrong? Julian said again, but Viola couldn't answer. The trembling had become so severe. She felt Julian grab her and back her out of the door. She heard him shut it firmly. It felt like a bullet ripping through her, burrowing deep inside her, furthering the abyss. She collapsed on the bottom step, huge sobs overtaking her as she felt her son's arms around her. Bella Viola, is that you? It was strange to hear her name spoken in this suddenly foreign neighborhood. But there stood her mother's oldest neighbor and friend at the curb. I told my Frankie that was you, but he said no way. But I knew. I'd know your beautiful face anywhere. You're finally home. Viola flew from the steps and threw herself into the arms of Mrs. Capucci. Where did she move to? How come she didn't tell me? Mrs. Capucci, where's my mother? Oh, Bella, sweet Bella, how could you not know? Your precious mother left this earth two and a half years ago. May she rest in peace. As she said that, Mrs. Capucci began to bless herself, but Viola grabbed her hand. No. Viola knew as long as Mrs. Capucci didn't finish the sign of the cross, her mother would still be alive. Mrs. Capucci pulled Viola's head to her chest and murmured, Sivarot's true. Santa Maria, what happened to you? How could you not know? Annie. The kids had been relatively well behaved without their daddy around. Maybe they sensed her dark mood, or maybe they were just tired from their play date. But it was 8.30, and they were sound asleep, and the evening stretched out before her. The eerie silence bothered her. The house on the lake was more Jessie's sanctuary than hers. At times like this, she missed New York. She'd made Jessie promise that they could retire there. He hadn't been in love with the idea, tickling her and tousling, but she had ended up on top of him and, in a mock victory, had threatened to not release him until he'd promised. She was jealous he was there now. She had tried calling him earlier so that the kids could say goodnight, but he hadn't answered. She wasn't particularly worried. She knew how he got when he was at a conference of his kind, as she called him, the straight arrow accountants. He'd call eventually. Annie wandered around the house, touching things, caressing them, trying to evoke the essence of Jesse. She wanted him home now. She wandered toward her studio in the attic and stood in front of her latest painting and knew what she needed. But she promised Jessie that while they were trying to get pregnant, she wouldn't smoke. But her painting cried out for it. She knew that she could finish it, bring out something more if she was just a little bit high. She rubbed her belly and thought, if you're in there, don't inhale. I need this. And with that, she went into the false bottom of the dresser she used to store canvas and supplies and brought out the weed and papers. 
She realized she'd left the cordless downstairs and wouldn't hear it if Jesse called. But as quickly as she thought that, she thought it was for the best. He'd know the minute he heard a voice, and she couldn't bear the thought of hearing his disappointment. With the first drag, she felt herself relax, and with each successive inhale, the day's annoyances disappeared and she felt herself emerge. She studied the painting and found what she was looking for, picking up her paintbrush and began frantically adding the missing element. She was lost in her painting, floating on the curves and in the brush strokes. She danced sensuously with the brush strokes and bowed to the painting. She took off her clothes and continued to paint in her panties, giggling and wishing Jesse was home so they could make love in front of the painting. It was a pregnant goddess emerging from the sea, its breast full, the earth its belly. Her hair was at first silky but round its way into the head of a dragon. Her lover was in the background with huge wings that covered her, protected her. Annie had worked up a sweat and fell to the floor, laying, gazing at her painting. The eyes of the goddess burned into her own. The goddess knew her own power and told Annie to claim her own. The rug underneath her was scratchy on her back, which made her arch and moan. She sat up and continued to stare at the painting. She put her hands to her head and brought them down to her body. She ached for Jesse, imagining he was there and was at the command of the goddess. She rolled onto her stomach, the roughness of the rug now feeling good against her breast. Suddenly tired, she put her head down, hearing only the song of the goddess lulling her to sleep, and not the phone two floors below. Kimberly. After a delicious dinner and fun banter, the driver held the door open as Kimberly stood into the back seat and Mark beside her. One of the things that she liked about Mark was that he never asked her to do anything in the car. And she never had to reprimand him like other Johns who were going ritzy for the first time and had no idea how to behave. Though, truthfully, she hadn't had to deal with that in years. But the memory was always fresh. She always found it so jarringly distasteful. They arrived at the Soho Grand and went up to the suite. Harrington seemed hesitant as he put the key in the door. But then it seemed to pass, and she wondered if she'd imagined it. There were two bedrooms in the suite, which she found curious. And she knew his wife and kids would never be with him. She couldn't imagine who could be with him on a trip like this. Kimberly noticed that Harrington didn't close the bedroom door completely, leaving it slightly ajar. So she concluded that he must have a big suite. Mark removed his jacket and loosened his tie. He seemed to be relaxed as so she dismissed her earlier thoughts. He stretched out on the bed and watched as Kimberly opened up her case of tricks. What's new in sex? He asked her and grinned his boyish grin. Very little darling, it's all in the imagination. But I did bring a few of your favorites and some updates on some old standards. I'm all yours. I know, she replied and took out a black velvet blindfold. Kimberly climbed onto the bed and onto Mark. As she bent down to blindfold him, she let the top of her breasts brush against his lips, and he moaned almost inaudibly. Mark was never one to rush the experience. He took time to enjoy each sensuous moment. 
As she tied the blindfold on him, Kimberly breathed him in. She barely wanted to admit to herself how attractive she still found Harrington, and Kimberly of 29 had fallen for him in a way. She let her mind slip into forbidden territory, a place where she wasn't working but loving. She straddled him and studied his blindfolded face. She could relax her usual mask. She leaned over him, letting her hair brush him as she broke her own rules and rained kisses and licks down his body. Her hands moved differently. They lingered at their work. She caressed and wanted to see the look of pleasure come across his face. She forgot what she knew. That though Harrington was one of her more entertaining Johns, who seemed to want her to generally participate, she chose to forget that it was ultimately for his own ego. She was Kimberly of 29, who had hope for the future, who allowed herself to believe that Mark Harrington loved more than himself and possessions and had something close to an emotion for her. It wasn't until later that she realized he was like any other John, ultimately selfish, and the greatest guy in the world to any woman who could ensure his libido was satiated. But that disappointment was all in the past. Or the future. As tonight, she threw herself into a role as a 29-year-old natural beauty, secure in her looks and her power. Harrington always paid for the entire evening and night with her, which was no small sum, as he never wanted to compete with anything, including the clock. Kimberly lost track of time, so when the door opened... And she heard a strangled noise from an attractive blonde man watching them. She had no idea what time it was. She looked at the man and looked at Harrington and calmly said, Harrington, we got company. With his blindfold now gone, Mark simply turned his head and said to the blonde man, Care to join us, Jesse? And with that, the blonde man rushed from the doorway with a stricken look on his face, which made Mark, of all things, Kimberly noted, laugh. The situation struck Kimberly as strange, and the sound of Mark's laugh unnecessarily cruel. That sound struck a chord somewhere deep within her. The tone of the laugh had an intimacy to it, making it all the more cruel. To the recipient of its sharp edges, its daggers, if you will, she knew it meant betrayal. She couldn't figure out who the blonde man was to warrant such a reception. But the laugh's cruelty trickled ice down her spine, abruptly disconnecting her from fondness and nostalgia. Who was that? It was out of her mouth before she knew what she was saying. She hoped it didn't sound as sharp and shrill as it did to her own ears. Harrington snorted and said, <laughs> No one. Now where were we? He hadn't noticed her tone, obviously, and she noticed his true detachment to what had just transpired. She returned to her work with gusto, but she felt her remaining affection for Harrington evaporate. Before her eyes, he became no more than a selfish customer who had paid for the entire night. Oblivious to Mark was the absence of fondness the feeling of old friends or even lovers. Kimberly's spare motion 
had gone with the tortured, unknown man named Jesse, and she wanted to know who he was. Jesse. He was blind with shame. How the hell could he have been so stupid? So trusting? So wrong? He stumbled from Mark's room and out of the suite. He lunged at the elevator button and stabbed at it, willing it to come. He didn't know why, but he needed to escape. He felt in that instant he would never see Mark Harrington again. It was over. He wondered now if there had ever been an it in the first place. How had he lost his head? His heart? His reason? Why had he destroyed his peace in his fuzzy cage with Annie? He didn't even know if he could ever get it back. The relationship with Mark, this trip to New York, with all the ridiculous fantasies he'd had around it, why had he risked everything he had carefully built for this man? He was more sober now than he'd been before and felt so acutely aware he tingled. But it wasn't a pleasant sensation. It hurt. To the core of his being, it hurt. Scenes from his entire life flashed into his mind and every cell registered the mistakes and shame. His skin felt like cords holding him tight. He thought he might suffocate. The elevator reached the lobby and he fell out of it and ran to the doors of the hotel. The night air hit him and he breathed a little easier for a moment. But then an image of Mark or Annie or the woman he'd just seen with Mark would come into his mind and the tingle of shame would course through his body, making him wish he could die. He'd managed to call Annie and leave a cheerful message and was thankful he'd done it before this, because he doubted he'd ever recover. Seeing his chance, the boy spoke, swimming in Jesse's shame. He whispered a thought he dare not say too loudly. Why not die? What's there to live for now? Can you go back to Annie? Can you go back to life as it was? You don't deserve that life. It, it was meant for someone better than you. And there it was, the thought Jesse had always feared hearing. He wasn't worthy of his life. He knew why. Because it was built on a lie. He silently agreed with the boy in his head. How could he take pride in anything he'd achieved with Annie, with this shame that had lurked in the shadows of his soul now boldly taking residence? He jumped onto the street from the sidewalk away from the maddening crowd and began to sprint. He crossed Canal Street and headed down West Broadway. Next time on Ovid's Flea. I just want to hear something of her, even if it's how I broke her heart. One's friends are not supposed to go live in a lifetime movie. A plan was beginning to form. Albert's Flea is voiced by Patrick Brewis, Anita Charlesier, Dan Johnson, Pat Jones, Harry Wetzel, Reed Winfrey, and C.N. Yates. This is executive produced by Pavan Muzumdar with Jonathan Moises, C.N. Yates, and Pat Jones in conjunction with Arden Park Productions, LLC. The sound engineer is Nicholas Sapunos, and the sound was designed by Nicholas Sapunos and Pat Jones. Ovid's Flea was made possible by the generosity of independent sponsors, as well as those through Kickstarter. Special thanks goes to Monica, Andrew, and Sophia Moore, Polish Scouting Studios and Anja Brozda, and Rick Gomes. To find out more about the world of Ovid's Flea, go to ovidsflea.com.